so good to see all of you here today. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. So glad that you're here. I'm thankful to all of you joining us online, a whole lot of you. Uh, we love you. Hope you're well. Hope this is a great experience for you today. And uh, so today, as all of you know, is Palm Sunday. And you know more than likely that Palm Sunday uh, celebrates the Sunday some 2,000 years ago, the first day of the week when Jesus was crucified, and the Sunday before the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, surrounded uh, by a large crowd of people who threw their coats and palm branches on the road in front of him like some red carpet, and shouted, uh, prayers and praises and worshiped him as savior of the world. I've, I've long been fascinated with how John in his gospel, which we've been teaching through during this Lenten season, how John introduced Palm Sunday in his gospel. I'm going to really spend most of my time today on how John introduced this day, and we'll uh, hear two or three hours from now when I'm finished teaching, we'll come back to the Palm Sunday thing. Here's what John said. He said, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, the festival of Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, went out to meet him. So, when Jesus rode that donkey down the Mount of Olives, through the valley of Kidron, and into Jerusalem, he had begun his journey from the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus some two miles away in this little village called Bethany. Um, in fact, uh, last spring, a number of us were in uh, uh, Israel together, and we walked that path from the top of the Mount of Olives with its majestic view of Jerusalem down in the valley below, and we walked that path down where Jesus walked on Palm Sunday. It's pretty incredible. When the crowds uh, filled the sides of the roads, lined the roads to, to shout praises to him and about him, though, it's important to know that they were not only welcoming him, but they also wanted to see and were seeing the evidence of the greatest miracle that Jesus had performed so far. And that miracle's name was Lazarus. Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus 
who had died and who had been buried for four days and then was raised from the dead by Jesus. And so Lazarus was part of the reason, in fact, it seems from the text, a big part of the reason that the Palm Sunday crowds were so large and excited and convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the Savior of the world. So again, today, I want to focus on what we might call the prelude to Palm Sunday, as told by John in his story of Jesus. And I'm going to organize it like this. It's going to be real simple. I'm going to talk about seven learnings about Jesus and ourselves in the Palm Sunday prelude. Now, you're going to see a miracle today. Because those of you, some of you heard me teach for almost 30 years now, you've never, probably literally, ever heard me get through seven anythings. Probably not five anythings and rarely three anythings. But a miracle happened in the first service, just so you know. I got through all seven. All right? And so how I'm going to organize my thought is I'm going to pick up this next part of the text as we've been working through the Gospel of John, you know, our, our, our methodology over this Lenten season has been to respond to John chapter 1, verse 18, where John said that Jesus came to explain God to us. We're trying to learn from the story of Jesus, as told in the Gospel of John, what God's like. Okay, and so we're going to pick up now in the next part of the story with uh, the, the passage uh, that, that is between John 11, verse 1, and John 12, verse 19. I'm simply going to read a passage, I'm going to make an, uh, a point about it, and then I'll teach a few minutes on each of these things as we break down this really large text into, into bite-sized pieces. Here's the first one, John 11, verse 1, now... There was a certain sick man, Lazarus of Bethany, Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, her sister. So the sister sent a message to Jesus saying, Lord, look, your dear friend is very sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, this particular sickness is not going to terminate in death, but it is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now, Jesus really did love this Martha and this sister of hers, Mary, and this Lazarus. So when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed right where he was for two more days. After that, I pick up again in verse 11, Jesus says to them, Our dear friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there so I can wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's just fallen asleep, he'll recover. But Jesus had spoken to them about Lazarus' death while they thought he was talking to them about the sleep of sleeping. So then Jesus said to them clearly, Lazarus died, but I am actually glad he died for your sakes so that you will believe because I wasn't there. Come on, let's go see him. Here's my first learning from this text. When Jesus really loves us, sometimes he waits So we're told that Lazarus was a dear friend of Jesus and that Mary and Martha were his dear friends and disciples as well. Again, John 11, 5, now Jesus really did love this Martha and this sister of hers and this Lazarus. But one wonders, if he loved them so much, why did he wait so long to respond to their prayer, which came to them through the intercession of mutual friends? It appears 
that the fact that he loved them so much was the reason that he did not go immediately to Bethany, but, quote, stayed right there in the place where he was for two more days, end quote. You get the picture, right? Here, his dear friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus knows that he's about to die. Mary and Martha believe that he can heal him. They send a message to him, a prayer, if you please, And he loves him so much, he stays right where he is and doesn't start making his way to Bethany for two days. Now, as this story plays out, it becomes evidence that in his love for them, he waited to help them because he had planned something better for them than they were even asking for. He knew that Lazarus' sickness would not, as he said, terminate in death. This didn't mean that Lazarus wouldn't die, but it meant that he wouldn't stay dead. Jesus knew things, and Jesus knows things that other people don't know. This is why Jesus could say, I'm actually glad my friend died. Because he was able to stand at the beginning of the story, or at a juncture in the story, and know how the story was going to end. And he knew as much grief would be wrapped up in this tragedy that the grief would have a happy ending, that God would be glorified, and that the people who were involved would have something better at the end than they even know that knew they needed in the beginning. Many times, while we were in the process of developing this campus, and some of, some of you have heard a number of stories about this, but we, we were moving from essentially a, 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 a storefront down off of Main Street in West Orange, contiguous with uh, Pauly's Pub and the liquor store. Um, we had a lot of business uh, when we were down there. But anyway, um, that wasn't very funny, was it? At least I tried. Um, and we were making a big move, a small congregation who took on this huge eight-acre project. Anyway, many of you lived through it. But we were in a 10-year-long plan. Uh, it wasn't planned to be 10 years. It was planned to be about three or four. It ended up taking 10 years to develop what we now have at this campus. And it was, uh, it was cha- we faced immense challenge after immense challenge, largely because it was a bigger project than we were humanly capable of. And I learned later that there were people like our contractor ended up building the building who, who says that in those early meetings when we started coming up with these plans and all of that, that he didn't think there was any way that we actually would ever even get to groundbreaking. Nonetheless, here we are today by God's grace. But many times we faced just impossible things where it looked like the project was dead. There was no way that we could be successful. And, and we came to probably six or seven times over those 10 years when literally we're sitting in the office and we're having meetings saying, it appears this is over. The zoning board's not going to say yes. The planning board's not going to say yes. The town council to whom it all appeals isn't going to say yes. The bank isn't going to say yes. The money's not going to come in. We, you know, we start to, to blast what we think's a little bit of rock in order to dig deep into the foundation and we find out 
out there are a million dollars worth of rock blasting that needs to take place. And we say, where are we going to come up with a million dollars to blast rock? And so anyway, so, so our, our, our director of finance and business, Kevin McCollum, who's been here a part of our team for many, many years, many times we'd sit in my office or his office and say, this is over. And we started saying, when that kind of thing would happen, that, that we, you know, we just need some good news. And so many times when we were desperately needing good news, the next news we got was bad news, badder news, worser news. And we, we would begin to say, this is like water on the sacrifice. Remember that story in the Old Testament where Elijah the prophet has this confrontation with the 400 prophets of Baal and the, the deal was in short, that they had a sacrifice on an altar and whichever God consumed the sacrifice by fire, that God would be declared God. The prophets of Baal failed miserably. No fire came. And when Elijah came his turn to ask God to show up and work a miracle, Elijah decided that it wasn't enough to need God to drop fire from heaven, but he took a bunch of water and he poured it bucket after bucket after bucket. He poured water on the sacrifice so that the impossible would become impossibler. And, and so many times Kevin and I would say we need good news and we get bad news and we say it's just water on the sacrifice because what we learned is that time and time again as we continued moving forward in faith that God would show up and work some miracle and make a way where there seemed to be no way. Well, see, sometimes... And, and then what we would discover is the thing we thought we wanted isn't what we really needed, but we had to go through the, God, where are you, and start thinking and get creative and find other ways, and all of a sudden we'd come up with some solution that we wouldn't have come up with if we wouldn't have had the problem in the first place. Do you understand? And you get this idea that God's looking at us, and we're sad, but he's glad because he knows if we'll just hang in there and keep believing him that something's going to happen at some point that's going to be better than what we even thought we needed when we thought we needed it and so some of us may be sitting here to say today saying hey lord i lost my job it's dead i need a job now or hey lord i want to marry that person soon or hey lord i need this for my kids now or i want that from my husband now and god smiles and says i love you so much that i'm not going to answer your lesser prayer because if you hang in here i've got something better for you just trust me here's the next part of the text so when jesus arrived finally he found lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days when Martha heard that Jesus is coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house, stayed seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give it to you. Jesus says to her, your brother is going to rise to life again. Martha says to him, I know you will rise to life again at the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I, I am that resurrection and that life. The person believing into me. Even when that person dies, will live again. That is to say, every single individual who is alive and believing into me will never die an eternal death. And then he says to Martha, do you believe this, Martha? 
And she says to him, yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. Here's my second learning. Trusting Jesus is always the most important thing. Frederick Dale Bruner in his marvelous commentary in the Gospel of John, and in fact, we're using his translation, is found in his commentary to, to storytell during this series. Frederick Dale Bruner says that trust is one of the few ways that John's Gospel tells readers that they can give Jesus pleasure. If you want to make God happy, tell him you believe into him. Now, when you see the word believe in this text, and this is true through the New Testament, you, you, you really should at times, for your own comprehension, substitute the word trust. Because in our vernacular, that, work, that word really better represents what Jesus is saying when he says, I want you to believe into me. Um, to believe in someone is more than just believing that they exist. And some people think that's what it means when we talk about believing in Jesus. It's about more than saying, yes, I believe you exist. But when we tell someone that we believe in them, we're saying that we're trusting that they are who they say they are and that they will do what they say they will do. We say to someone, I believe in you. you, you you're not saying, I know you exist. You're saying, I know that that." You are who you say you are, and you'll do what you say you'll do. I trust you. When we trust in Jesus, it gives him pleasure again and again. He sets up situations in people's lives where the bottom line issue is this. Martha, do you believe in me? And when we believe in him, we receive his life now and forever, and when we believe in him, he does things in our lives now that reflect the glory of God and his resurrection power. But here's the question I'd like to pose today. When we look at negative situations in our lives, when we look at sealed up tombs and we know that the thing that we hoped would be taken care of instead of being taken care of the way we hoped it would be instead is 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 dead and and as martha later says stinking in the tomb are we able to look at that through the eyes of trust in god or do we look at that as if it's a hopeless situation without factoring god's ability to even bring something better out of that than what we had initially hoped for. Are you living with a life mentality or a death mentality? When you see an apparent negative circumstance, what do you believe? I read an article this week in the New York Times. The title of the argument is Bad News Bias. Bad News Bias. Uh, uh, the, the columnist is David Leonhardt. He's, he wrote, the U.S. media is offering a different picture of COVID-19 from science journals or the international media, a study finds. An economics professor at Dartmouth College noticed something last year about the COVID-19 television coverage that he was watching. It almost always seemed negative, regardless of what he was seeing in the data or hearing from scientists he knew. 
When COVID cases were rising in the U.S., the news coverage emphasized the increase. When cases were falling, the coverage instead focused on those places where the cases were rising. And when vaccine research began showing positive results, the coverage downplayed it. He began working with two other researchers, building a database of COVID coverage from every major network, CNN, Fox News, Politico, The New York Times, and hundreds of other sources in the U.S. and overseas. About 87% about of COVID coverage they discovered in the national U.S. media last year was negative. The share was 51% in international media, 53% in regional media, uh, U.S. regional media, and 64% in science journals. Notably, the coverage was negative in both U.S. media outlets with liberal audiences like MSNBC and those with conservative offices, uh, conservative audiences like Fox News. The researchers say they're not sure what explains their findings, but they do have a leading contender. The U.S. media is giving the audience what it wants. Now, this is a stunning thing to consider. You know, when you look at data or when you listen to the scientist, someone has the opportunity to interpret the data or the science in either the most optimistic way possible or the most negative way possible. And what the U.S. media has done around COVID, I'm not really interested in getting into COVID right now. I'm trying to make a larger point. But what the U.S. media has done around COVID is they've told us the absolute worst that can be told to us about it. And when there's good news to be heard, they, for the most part, ignore the good news, focus on the bad news. Consequently, what? We are a paralyzed group of people. Because we've chosen to believe the worst about a thing instead of believe the best about the thing. And what does he call it? He calls it a bad news bias. Here's, my, here's, here's the question. When you see a challenging situation, do you default to the negative or you, do you default to trust? Are you able to look at difficult things happening in the world or happening in a relationship or happening in a person that you love or happening in your own personal economy? Are you able to look at that and hear Jesus? Hear what's, what's Martha looking at in this story? She's looking at the tomb of her dead brother and Jesus says, do you believe? Well, here's the data. He's dead, Right? But Jesus isn't paying attention to that, not at least at this moment. The first thing he wants to know before the story can go on is, do you believe? This doesn't mean that we ignore the difficult or tragic events in our lives. We are not Pollyanna. But we do look at them through the eyes of trust. We default to faith. We look at a sealed up tomb and through our tears, we know somehow that because Jesus is engaged in our story, that even that will have a happy ending. Yes, he died, Martha said, but I still believe. Listen, Guys, as followers of Jesus, please, oh, I, I, I wish I could talk about this for an hour. As followers of Jesus, we cannot default to the negative. Please, please. It's one thing. You know, the people around you, that may be their, their, their instinctive response. But we are, guys, we are technically called believers. See? And if you're a believer, you know what that means? It means you 
belief. And that just doesn't mean say, I believe Jesus exists and that he died for my sins. It means you believe. It means you trust him. It means that you believe that regardless what's happening in the world around you, that somehow or another, he's going to work it out for his good. He's going to cause it to have a happy ending. He's going to take bad things. He's going to redeem bad things. Somehow he's going to make it good. It means that even the very worst that life can offer, which is death itself, was conquered on Easter Sunday morning. I'm getting a week ahead of myself. But the fact is, the worst life can throw at you will have a happy ending. Because in Easter, Jesus made everything bad come untrue. We have a default to faith. Carla Walinda, a great tightrope aerialist, fell to his death in 1978 while walking a 75-foot high wire in downtown San Juan. Shortly after this tragedy, his wife, also an aerialist, discussed that fatal walk. She recalled that all Carl thought about for three straight months before his attempt was falling. It was the first time that he'd ever thought about failure in his work. And from her point of view, he put all of his energies into not falling rather than walking the tightrope. Carl, she said, was virtually destined to make a mistake. He wasn't thinking about getting to his destiny. He was thinking about everything that could go wrong. I can understand that. but but you're not going to get where you're going if you're not focused on where you're going and God helping you get where you're going, but you're focused on all the bad stuff, the negative stuff, the critical stuff. If you're focused on that, well, you're going to have, you're not going to get where you're supposed to go because Jesus, in order to cooperate with your life and to help get you to the life God dreams for you, is constantly asking you this question. Do you believe? Now, for another theological take on this, just check out Shrek and the donkey just, just for a minute. Just for a minute. Well, I have a, a bit of a confession to make. Um, donkeys don't have layers. We, we wear our fear right out there on our sleeves. Wait a second. Donkeys don't have sleeves. You know what I mean. Oh, you can't tell me you're afraid of heights. No, I'm just a little uncomfortable about being on a rickety bridge over a boiling lake of lava. Come on, donkey. I'm right here beside you, okay? For... Emotional support. We'll just tackle this thing together one little baby step at a time. Really? Really, really. Okay. That makes me feel so much better. Just keep moving. And don't look down. Okay. Look down. Look down. Keep on moving. Don't look down. Don't look down. Keep on moving. And don't look down. Shrek! I'm looking down! Oh, God, I can't do this. Just let me off right now, please. But you're already halfway. Yeah, but I know that half is safe. Okay, fine. I don't have time for this. You go back. Shrek, no, Just wait. Just don't keep going. Oh, let's have a dance Don't do that. Oh, I'm sorry. Do what? Oh, this? Yes, that. Yes? Yes, do it. Okay. Um, no, Shrek. No! Stop, stop, stop doing it! Stop it! I'm doing it! Oh, I'm gonna die! I'm gonna die! I'm gonna die! Shrek, I'm gonna die! Oh! That'll do, donkey. That'll do. Two, two important lessons. First of all, don't be a donkey. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, keep on believing and don't look down. 
keep on moving forward and don't look down. If you're focused on the bad, on the negative, if you take all the data, if you look sometimes even at the real thing that's not good news and you don't see somehow that God can show up and help turn the bad to good, well, you're going to keep from getting where God wants to take you in your life. Here's the next part of the text. When Martha had said this, which was what? I believe. She went back and called her sister Mary and said to her privately, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. Now, when Mary heard this, she was instantly raised and was making her way to Jesus. Important little interjection here. We see this word that Mary was instantly raised. The, 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 that phraseology in, in, in the original language of, of, of this text is the same exact phraseology that's used to describe the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, what's going on with Mary? Mary, from what all we can tell, all the signs say, Mary was tremendously depressed. And from a purely human standpoint, she had every reason to be. Her brother had died. Jesus could have helped him. Jesus didn't show up. And so when Jesus now shows up, Martha, who's very activistic, goes out to meet him to have her say, but Mary's in the fetal position at home, understandably, and she is deeply depressed. But then she gets word, Jesus is asking for you. And when she heard Jesus was asking for her, she is instantly raised. Like Jesus is raised from the dead, she's raised from her depression. And then she makes her way to Jesus. When Mary got to Jesus, she saw him and fell down at his feet and was saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So when Jesus saw her crying like this, and those with her crying as well, he was greatly troubled in spirit and deeply moved. Greatly troubled in spirit and deeply moved. So he said, where did you put him? They say to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus bawled. You'd be more familiar hearing it in the King James or NIV language, the shortest verse of Scripture in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, here's the third learning. In, God, in Jesus, God wept. So, so important technical point. Now, the, 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 the man Jesus is reflecting the heart of God. He is God and he is man. And the man Jesus, who's explaining God to us, according to John, shows us something about God. Now there's a pair, and he cries. He sees these people crying. He enters into their suffering. He feels it, and he bawls. Now the paradox is that I told you a few moments ago that when he knew that Lazarus was dead, he was glad. Now how then that we get to the middle of the story is he deeply moved in spirit to the point where he weeps? Now, some people say he's crying because the people didn't have faith, but I think the people do express faith. I don't believe that's what's happening here. I think he's deeply moved in spirit and, 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 and grieved because he enters into the suffering of these people who are facing this terrible situation, and he feels what they feel. See, he's glad because he knows the end of the story. But that doesn't mean then that he just walks around saying, nothing bad is happening, nothing bad is happening, nothing bad is happening. He faith, to, to be a person of faith doesn't mean that you confess away the realities of life that we face. If somebody's sick, they're sick. 
If something didn't go well, it didn't go well. If there's been a setback, there's been a setback. You can't ask Jesus to solve a problem you're not acknowledging exists. See? It's just you face that knowing that through your trust in Jesus, he's going to work it out to where what he's glad about ends up being the thing you're glad about at the end of the story. But during the process of our story, sometimes he enters our suffering. He cares about what we're experiencing. Hebrews 4 tells us, for, for we do not have a high priest referencing Jesus who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses let us then approach god's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need so we see here in john eleven thirty three, when jesus saw her crying like this he was greatly troubled in spirit and deeply moved and then we're told jesus wept now another thing i like about this story is i like the way that jesus meets mary and martha as they each respond to this terrible situation in line with their own unique personalities uh, bruner has it like this sad depressed hurting mary who could not honestly like her more ebullient sister martha go out to meet the tardy jesus this unworthy mary is given jesus worthying invitation the teacher is here and he is asking for you active martha passive mary outgoing martha inward mary social martha spiritual mary but martha is the heroine in john's story where you might remember that mary was the heroine in luke's story remember the famous story martha's serving and busy and jesus is sitting at the feet of jesus and everybody says hail mary that doesn't sound right. I didn't mean, you, you get the point. Look at Mary. She's awesome. She's so spiritual. She's so deep. She's so sensitive. What's wrong with Martha? Well, in this story, Martha's the heroine. She's the one who says, I'm going to go meet Jesus. I'm going to have a conversation with him. I'm going to get this thing done. While Mary, in her deep sensitivities and her deep feeling, is depressed and unable to rouse herself to get up and get cleaned up and go meet Jesus. Do you, but, but here's the point. Jesus loves them both the same. And he meets each of them where they are. And he takes whatever level of faith they're able to confess. And part of their faith is confessed even in the midst of their pain. You could have healed him if you were here. We know that you could. No one has ever died in your presence before Jesus. And we know if you would have been here, you would have healed him, see? And Jesus says, Mary, you're depressed. Come on, let's get up. I want to know, do you believe in me? Martha, you're all aggressive and active. That's okay. I want to know, do you believe in me? He meets both of them where they are. He enters their suffering. He feels their pain, but thankfully the story moves on. John eleven thirty eight. 38. So Jesus again, hurt deeply inside, comes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone rolled over on top of it. Jesus says, lift the stone up, please. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, it stinks already in there. He's been dead four days. Jesus says to her, Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would actually see the glory of God? So they lifted up the stone. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but for the sake of the crowd standing there with me, I wanted to say it this way, so they will come to trust that you sent me. Beautiful lesson on prayer here. No time to go into it except to say, Jesus talks to the Father in a very normal voice. Jesus, you know, God the Father was not hard of hearing. He didn't have to shout at him. But he, 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 so he calmly says, I, I know that you're going to do your thing here, but now for the sake of the people here, he raises his voice. When he said this, he roared with a great voice, Lazarus, come out of there. 
The dead man did come out of there, bound head and foot with a napkin still over his face. Jesus says to them, unwrap him and let him go home. Here's the fourth learning. Jesus does not just cry, he also roars. So the text tells us in 1133 that Jesus was greatly troubled in spirit and deeply moved. And verse 38 tells us that he was hurt deeply inside. These are, according to the grammarians, two ways of saying the same thing. So Jesus is deeply moved inside and troubled. And he has two responses to this. The first one is, he cries. The second one is, he roars. Benjamin Warfield, Princeton Theological Seminary professor, wrote an essay about the, the, this expression in John 11, and he wrote the very words that are used are the same ones that Greek poets used to describe a war horse ready to enter battle, a stallion rearing on his hind legs, nostrils flaring, angry at what he sees, and ready to enter the conflict as a warrior himself, even as he carries a warrior in armor on his back. So just to remind you, when you see the words that Jesus was greatly troubled in spirit or deeply moved or hurt deeply inside, all of it means the same thing. And this is the way that Greek poets at that time would, would describe us a war horse, a great stallion rearing on his hind legs, nostrils flaring, a warrior on his back, getting ready to enter battle and to win a great victory. So Jesus, when he's deeply moved, doesn't just cry. He cries just for a little bit, guys. I think this is really important. He cries just for a little bit because now the story is going to move on to the thing he was glad about at the beginning of the story. He's still going to get to the happy ending. And so Jesus doesn't just cry, he roars. He's like a great stallion who's going to enter battle now with death. And he's going to defeat death. He roars, Lazarus, come out. See, he doesn't just feel our pain. He does something about it. He doesn't just cry with us. He'll stand with you and look at some stinking thing that you're facing in your life and he'll say, come out of there. He feels your pain and he'll redeem your pain. You have to hear him shouting. Don't just see him weeping. You have to hear him shouting because ultimately Easter proves to us that he faces our greatest enemy and he defeats it. Like a great warrior, the text goes on, John 11. From that day forward, they were making plans to execute him. So Jesus no longer walked around openly among the Judeans. And then we're told during, in chapter 12, but I'll connect it here to make this point. They came not just for Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the religious leaders had a meeting to put Lazarus to death too. Here's the fifth learning. It's that we still need Easter. What do I mean by that? This one miracle in Lazarus' life did not resolve every difficulty in his life. Lazarus was raised from the dead to live in a broken world. In fact, this miracle now meant that he had new enemies. The religious leaders didn't just want to kill Jesus. They hadn't just put a contract out on Jesus. They put a contract out on Lazarus as well. What was Lazarus's crime? He died, he was buried, he was stinking. Jesus told him to come out, and he did. 
They're going to kill him, though, because they want to kill not only the miracle worker, they want to kill the evidence of his miracle. Reminds me of this great passage I think about a lot in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, where the apostle Paul said, a great door of effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. Tremendous life principle here. Boom, he says, we had a breakthrough. A door opened. God opened a door. And what happened when you walk through the door? There was somebody standing on the other side with a baseball bat trying to hit me over the head. A great door opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Something that I've learned is one miracle never solves everything because the miracle happens in the context of a fallen, broken world. You end up needing more miracles again to get to where God is destining you to go. You can't be discouraged by that. That's the reality of that. Lazarus was raised as a human being still living in a decaying body. Lazarus was 30, tradition says, when this story took place. At age 60, he died again. Lazarus is still, whatever's left of him, in a tomb waiting for the final resurrection. But see, this is why we still need Easter, see? This is why we still need Easter. It's important for us to understand that everything's not going to be completely, fully, absolutely resolved during this age. See, next Sunday, we'll talk perhaps about how when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was not raised from the dead in his decaying body. He was raised from the dead in a glorified body. It was the same body, but better. See, he... He resolved the issue once and for all. And it's only through our faith in Jesus that we know that someday, because of Easter, we will live in a reality where everything will be the way it was meant to be, and we always have to keep that final hope in mind. But in the meantime, know this, that because Jesus did one miracle, it doesn't mean that you're not going to face enemies. It doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you still don't have to do the work. Because we're just human beings, But you also know that because he worked this miracle, you can expect a miracle the next time you need one. And here's the next part of the text. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came into Bethany where Lazarus was, the man who Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a banquet for Jesus there. Martha was doing the serving, and Lazarus was one reclining with Jesus at the table. Lazarus, who was dead, stinking in the grave for four days, is sitting there eating at this banquet. They throw in the honor of Jesus. Then Mary got it. She's now saved from her depression. She got a pound of very costly ointment, something that most believe worth, worth thousands of dollars in our day, in today's money, pure nard, and anointed Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair, and the house was filled with the ointment's fragrance. An act of extravagant worship, but really, what would you expect from somebody who just saw Jesus do what Jesus had done? And then we're told the next day, A huge crowd came to the festival. Now we're back at Palm Sunday. We're talking today about the prelude to Palm Sunday. A huge crowd came to the festival having heard that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. So they got branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and were roaring. He roared at death and now these people are roaring praises at him. 
They were roaring, Hosanna, literally, oh, please save us now. Blessings on the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. Yes, the King of Israel. Then too, the crowd who had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and had raised it from the dead were giving testimonies to what had happened. That's why this huge crowd came out to meet Jesus. They heard that Jesus did this special Lazarus sign. The sixth learning is the only res- appropriate response to Jesus and what he does is faith and worship. Mary moves from depression to extravagant devotion. The crowds that saw Lazarus raised from the dead, those are the people in large part who were lining the road on Palm Sunday, taking their coats and throwing them down and palm branches and throwing them down and shouting Hosanna. I mean, who wouldn't when Jesus shows up and does amazing things in your life? Who wouldn't understand that the need is to respond in faith and worship? And here's the final section, John 11, verse 20. Jesus now, this crowd, so Palm Sunday happens, and then there are some people who try to come and see Jesus, and this is attached to the story. Jesus says to them, it has arrived, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Amen, amen. I want to tell you something very important. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies there, it remains completely isolated and alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Right now, Jesus says, I am so depressed. But what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. Now what's about to happen? Well, the next time we meet together, guys, it's going to be Good Friday. What should I say, he asked. Father, save me from this hour. Save me from death. Save me from this tragic thing. Oh no, the whole reason I came was for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And Jesus replied, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be thrown out. And I, when I have been hoisted up from the earth, when I have been lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself. I think here that Jesus bridges the gap between the resurrection of Lazarus and his own coming death and resurrection in this text, particularly with the principle of the seed. This is very important. Jesus said that when he died and was buried, it would be like he was a seed planted in the ground. But he said when he was raised from the dead, that seed would bear all kinds of fruit. And the fruit would be that it would be possible for everyone who believed in him to be raised also. His one seed would produce many seeds. This didn't mitigate the horror of the crucifixion. It just meant that Jesus knew without the crucifixion and the burial, there would be no future resurrection for those who believe in him. And this demonstrates a truth that we find in the resurrection of Lazarus as well. Jesus knew that when Lazarus passed through death, he would have a better story and make it possible for many to believe in Jesus who had never believed otherwise. In other words, in other words, the apparently terrible thing that happened to Lazarus, if it wouldn't have happened, wouldn't have 
produced more seeds, brought glory to God, raised people's faith, gathered a huge crowd for Palm Sunday, had us here 2,000 years later telling the story in a way that as people were leaving after the first service, people were talking about how incredibly encouraged they are and their faith was built. See, if Lazarus wouldn't have died and been buried, he wouldn't have been a seed buried in the ground. You need to understand that sometimes the negative thing that happens in your life is God saying, I want to take a little bit and I want to make more of it and in order for you to let me do that you're going to have to trust me here you're going to have to trust me here because I'm going to take your pain and I'm going to redeem it I'm going to give you a better story to tell than you even know even knew you needed all right I'm done with this several years ago several years ago I know I've been really long-winded during this teaching thing. I don't know how to do that much scripture without being a little long-winded. I tend to be long-winded anyway, but after Easter, I'm going to try to be a better guy, okay? Just so you know. First time I visited Rwanda in East Africa doing uh, leadership teaching and some uh, relief work and so on, I visited a genocide memorial where I met a man who... uh, During the genocide, if we could see that picture, please. During the genocide, this man was shot in the head and buried with the rest of his family, all of whom were dead. You remember the the genocide in Rwanda was when uh, the the Hutus killed 800,000 of their Tutsi rivals. This guy was a Tutsi and he saw his entire family shot and macheted to death. A mass grave, he shot in the head. Can you see the hole in this man's head? He was shot in the head and buried in this grave with his family and others in his village. But somehow, somehow, he woke up and he dug himself through those bodies out of that grave. And now when you visit, I I don't know if this is still uh, so, but when, when I visited this, my first visit a decade or so ago, you go to this, this genocide memorial where this guy lives. He basically never leaves this area where his family is still buried, but where he was raised up out of the grave. And he stands there, you know, people are visiting the genocide memorial. It's so moving. You can't help but want to cry when you hear these stories and know everything that's going on. It's terrible. It's, it's, it's as bad as any event that has happened in world history, I believe. But in the midst of that tragedy, this man is so full of faith. He's a man who was buried and left for dead who's alive. He's a man who lost his family, but who knows that someday, because of Easter, he's going to be with his family again. This is a man who's able to stand in the very worst that life offered and said, I know what it is to be on the other side, and everything's not perfect, but you know what? I have hope. I have hope because of the story of resurrection see it's the principle of the seed the thing buried when it when it when god breathes on it and brings it to what it needs to be the thing buried is better in the end than it was in the beginning somehow somehow we all have to have hope 
that regardless what challenge we're facing today, regardless what, 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 what sealed up, tomb, dead, stinking thing you're facing today, whatever hopeless situation, whatever dream seems to die, this isn't just theoretical, guys. Jesus is looking at you today and saying, I know it's real. I'm willing to cry with you. I see it. I feel your pain. I know it is. But listen, do you trust me? And when we come back and say, yeah, we trust you. Then Jesus moves from crying to roaring. He raises, he raises up things that are dead and brings them to life.